Hey, good morning, Ridge Church. My name is Daniel Sanderson. I'm the associate pastor here, and I'm so excited to be able to share the word with you guys today and continue on in our series called 64, all about the Lord's Prayer. But before we jump in, normally we will read together the Lord's Prayer because the more that we read and actually recite this prayer, the more that it becomes imprinted on our hearts. So we're going to do that again today, and then we're going to jump in. So if you can join with me, our Father in heaven, Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. So today we are focusing on a little bit of a heavier piece of the Lord's Prayer. And it's going to make you maybe think about stuff or feel different things that might feel you know, weighty and more intense and scary and tough. But I want you guys by the end of this sermon to fall more and more in love with God and for your eyes to be opened up to the realities of a war. A war that we cannot see but is just as real as what we can tangibly feel, like touch, taste, smell, um, and all of that. So I'm going to pray and then we're going to jump right into it. Lord, thank you so much for the opportunity that we have to learn from your truth, from your word God, I am so thankful for this example that Jesus has given us on how to pray and how to align our hearts and desires with your desires and your will. God, you know that this topic today is going to be a little heavier. But God, I pray at the end that everyone's going to be just as encouraged and excited and confident to know that they are not in this war and in this battle alone. And they realize that we have the biggest and the best ally that we could have ever, ever, ever hoped for. We love you. Amen. So have you ever been in a scenario where you're trying to achieve something? There's a goal. There's something you're trying to accomplish and do. But every time you take a step forward, there's like something almost like pushing back against you that's trying to prevent you from actually accomplishing that thing. It can be so frustrating. It can be tiresome. But it's just like something is not wanting me to do what I am trying to do. We all probably can think of an example like of that in our lives. For me, there was one of the most frustrating scenarios in my entire life that I ever had to go through and it had to do with this very feeling, this very thing. It was uh, before COVID and I was leading my first missions trip with a bunch of youth students to Guatemala. We were so excited. We were preparing for months on end, doing training. We knew we were going, we were getting to know the people that we were going to be meeting and building relationships with there in Guatemala. And it came to the day that we went to the airport. We were there at like 4 a.m. I'm not a morning person, so I wasn't too happy, but it was awesome to see all the kids come with their parents and they said their goodbyes, they got their photos, they were so cute and innocent and just so excited to go on this trip and they had no clue what was coming next. We went through security, everything went smooth at that point and then we got on the plane and there's the anticipation as we're about to take off and we're going down the runway and there's like the tension that build up as we take off and the back wheels lift off the ground. And I kid you not, 10 seconds later, we felt a walk. And all of a sudden there's a big flash of light and everyone screams and is freaking out and the plane stops elevating. It's just hovering over the water coming out of YVR. 
and we hear people yelling and screaming in the back and saying, we smell smoke, we smell smoke, and there's people running up to where the pilots were to try and tell them that there was smoke. And we're circling and circling and all these students are freaking out and they're anxious and they're crying. And my co-leader didn't realize at the time, but she was grabbing my arm and twisting it because she was so nervous. And all of a sudden over the loudspeaker, we hear, hey, we have to have an emergency landing. One of our engines isn't working. We have to land. There will be crews there. Don't worry. So we land. The crews do what they're supposed to do. Everyone is safe. And so we're like, oh, okay, good. We dodged the bullet. But then my first thought was, so now what? How do we get to Guatemala? We can't clearly go on this plane anymore. So we just followed the crowd and we went back through security and back out to where you first come into the airport. So we're back at square one or square one. And I'm asking her, what do we do? And they're like, well, just get in line. So we got in line. I kid you not, we waited in line. Well, I waited in line with some of the other leaders for 10 hours straight. All of the youth students were sleeping on the benches. They used up all their money for food already. They're probably eating part of the benches they were sleeping on because they were still so hungry. And we're waiting in line and we see the pilots come. They're like, hey, we know that you guys, we know that you guys were going to Guatemala. Can we show you something? We saw something we've never seen in our 25 years of flying. And they show us pictures that I think it was like something over 10 ducks flew straight into the engine right after takeoff and blew up the engine. You see like the feathers and the bones and we're like, really? We were grounded because of some ducks. We're like, oh, this is it. And so that was crazy. And we finally get to the front of the line and then we're working with the people at the front desk. They were lovely, but they're like, there's nothing we can do. This was spring break. Everyone's flying for vacation. This was the same time this, the Boeing 747s, I believe, were getting grounded because they were having mechanical issues. So there were no flights to get like these 30 people onto. So that like, you have to take them home. I'm like, I can't take 30 kids to my townhouse. Are you crazy? And so I was like, there's got to be something. Like, can you get to Seattle tonight? I was like, maybe. So we get on the SkyTrain, go to the River Rock Casino where there's a, a bus, like a Greyhound bus that we bypasses for. We, it drives us down to the Seattle airport. We get there and I tell all the students, do not leave your passports in the bus. Do not leave in the compartment in front of you. Guess what? A girl leaves her passport on the bus. The bus driver drives off. We've got no way to get a hold of him. We phone the company. They're closed for the weekends. And so now she's stuck in the States. Luckily, we had heard which hotel branch he was staying at. So we at least narrowed it down to five or six in the area. So I, I jumped on an Uber, drive, uh, an Uber car and we I would go to different hotels. And I would just sit there and read and wait and hopefully see this bus driver. After hours of doing this, finally get a phone call from the bus driver saying, hey, I found the passport. I phoned the emergency contact, figured out how to get a hold of you. So he went to one more hotel, got the passport, went to the hotel that we got passes for, got one hour of sleep within 30 hours, go back to the, to the airport. We fly to Denver, have a night layover in Denver, go to Houston, and then we arrive in Guatemala three days later at 1.30 a.m. We get out through of security and we're in one of the most dangerous cities in Central America and we're in the dark in the middle of the night with a bunch of youth standing there and our drivers from the organization we were partnering with were not there. And so people are freaking out. I've never been more stressed, more tired, more grumpy. I just felt like there was something fighting against us from getting to where we're trying to go to and accomplishing what we were trying to accomplish. I've never been tested so much emotionally. I've never been so hungry so grumpy. Long story short, we made it there and we were happy and it was an amazing, amazing trip. But I just was like, something does not want us to succeed in what we're trying to do. 
And what we're going to learn today from this portion of the Lord's Prayer is that there is something pushing against each and every one of us every single day in trying to accomplish what the rest of this prayer is asking us to do. It's not just coincidence that certain things happen, that there's some force that is fighting against you consistently. And to understand what it is and the importance of this part of the prayer in verse 13, where it says, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, we actually have to go through a quick recap of the rest of the Lord's prayer. And so we know that this Lord's prayer is Jesus's own prayer. It's Jesus's own heartbeat. It's him living it out. It is this summary of the Jesus kingdom movement and we say this prayer to imprint it on our hearts. It is broken down into three sections. There's the intro, and then there's like part one, which has three petitions, and part two that has three petitions. That's how it's kind of broken down. The intro is simply reminding us of which God we are praying to, because back in the time, there were so many different gods and different things that people would pray to. So this is a reminder, this is God, the Father of Jesus that you're praying to. Then the first part with three petitions is all about orienting ourselves to the Father and expressing our allegiance and love to Him. Kind of understanding His will and aligning our will with His will. That's the first part, and there's three petitions to it. And the first petition is His name. So God is teaching us through this prayer, saying, my name needs to be glorified. And, he, and God is saying that His name isn't always being treated right that there has to be some restoration to the holiness of his name. Because when sin came into the world, we decided to be our own gods and we decided to disobey and bring sin in. That took a hit to God's like holy name and his reputation. And God's wanting to change that and restore that. The second petition ties in closely with the first petition and it's his kingdom. Because you might wonder, how, how will this reputation be changed or restored? It is restored by the kingdom of God coming to earth. Like I said, ever since sin came into the world, God is now actively reclaiming what was already his. And it's by bringing the kingdom of heaven down to earth and permeating through the whole world. And we see that as a representation through Jesus. Jesus is the kingdom that has already started, that has already come here to earth. And so it's starting to overlap that Jesus is heaven invading earth and kicking the hell out of earth. The third petition is his will. And so the whole story of the Bible is about heaven invading earth and restoring the world and restoring us to what we were meant to be. So we know Jesus has already come. And we also know that there's a piece of the kingdom in each and every person that claims that Jesus is their Lord and Savior. And we have the Holy Spirit in us. We have a piece of the kingdom. And so when we are in the world and we are influencing the world and sharing the gospel and the news of Jesus to the world, that's us permeating the kingdom to all the reaches of the world. And that's what God's will is, is that he's wanting the whole world to be covered by his kingdom and so it's his will and it's also the calling on our life to join in on this movement because we want to bring glory to his name by helping the kingdom come here to earth and we do that because we have the power of the holy spirit and our goal is to go and share it and spread it throughout the world the second half 
or part or the second larger part of the Lord's prayer that has three petitions kind of changes its focus to, okay, now we know God's will and his heart, his desire. Now, what can we be asking as a community of believers and petitions that we can make to God? Things that we can be praying for every single day. The first one is bread. So it's asking for the basic provisions. It's also us cultivating a mindset of a beggar who sees each provision as a gift. And it's also helping us create the mindset of thinking about how are other people getting their provision, their basics. Kind of like the church in Acts and how they, they pulled everything together and shared it amongst everyone. So it's the mindset of making sure, does everyone else have their provision? And are we going to trust God with this provision? The second thing that we're asking for, that we're taught to pray for, is forgiveness. That we know that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, so now we can ask him for forgiveness that we're wiped clean. It's teaching us that we can ask him forgiveness. And then in return, because we've been forgiven, we should then go forgive others. And then the third petition in this part of the Lord's Prayer is where we land today, where we're asking for and we're praying for deliverance. And the reason why Jesus is hammering home in um, this verse, in verse 13, where it says, and lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil, is the thing that if we want to accomplish everything else that this prayer is asking us to do, if we want to bring the glory to God's name, we want to help restore that, if we want to bring the kingdom of heaven down to earth, if we want to trust him with our daily provision, and if we want to trust him that we're actually forgiven by what Jesus did on the cross, and if we want to join this movement and transform this world, we have to remember that there is an adversary and that adversary's name is Satan who's going to do absolutely everything that he can to prevent you from joining in on this movement. Because you can be expected or you can expect to be tempted and tried and he's going to do everything in his power so that you do not accomplish what you are praying for in the Lord's prayer. You have opposition. And Jesus is saying, we need to remember verse 13 because that's so crucial for the accomplishment of everything else that we're trying to do in the rest of the prayer. And because this prayer is Jesus' own prayer, he knows full well what Satan tries to do because Jesus experienced this exact same thing where he was tempted by Satan in the desert after being already in the wilderness for like 40 days. He was in the Garden of Gethsemane before he began his journey to die on the cross for his sins that it was so tempting. It was one of the biggest trials of his life where he knew that we would have to pray this prayer because Satan was going to do everything he could to stop us from accomplishing what God has called us to do. So what is Jesus bringing our attention to here? He's bringing our attention to a spiritual war, a spiritual battle. He's trying to open up our eyes to something that is feels or that we think is unseen. Because the thing is, if you believe in God, you have to believe that there is the adversary, that there is Satan. And he doesn't want you bringing the kingdom here. He doesn't want you to forgive. He does not want you to trust God. He doesn't want glory to be brought to, to God's name. And he utterly is relentless to try to attack you, to distract you, to discourage you, to destroy you. He takes all things that are good and he twists them for evil. And the reason why I'm starting to sense more and more of the work and the attempts of the enemy in our world, in my environment, in my community and all that, is that I cried in a silly comedy the other night. 
Des and I started watching this comedy about this football coach in the States that gets hired um, by a soccer team in, in the UK to actually try and break down the team. I won't explain why, because he knew nothing about how to actually coach soccer. He didn't know any of the rules. But in this TV show, everyone can't help but root for this coach because of his mindset and his attitude and what he cares about. He knew nothing about soccer, but yet all he did was care about everyone else, give everyone a chance, see the best in people, give them the time and space, love on them, believe in them. And Des would wake up and be like, you're still watching this show in the wee hours of the night. It wasn't a smart life choice for sure. But I would look to her and she's like, why are you weeping? And I'm just weeping in these episodes. And she's like, it's a comedy. What's wrong with you? And the next day I'm praying, God, why, did you, why was I crying? Why did I care so deeply about this comedy? And I realized is that that attitude, what that coach was bringing, is what it would look like to bring the kingdom of heaven here to earth. And what God wants us to have, like when it comes to a mentality. I know it's a TV show. I know the purposes are for other reasons. And I know it's all scripted. But I was crying because I was so refreshed by that attitude. I was like, this is what I want in this world. I want to see the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God infiltrate this world. And I'm not seeing that right now because I see destruction. I see people breaking down other people, being self-centered, falling into sin. And I'm wanting more of God's kingdom here because I know even in my own life, I know my sinful and my disgusting and my desires. I want to watch other people fail so I can feel better about myself. Because this is the heart of the enemy for each and every one of you. He wants you to fight against the kingdom coming. He wants you to be self-centered. He wants you to bring people down. He wants you to care more about the things of this world than of what's to come. At Village Church, the church I used to work at, our offices were looking over Highway 10, a, a busy road that had cars going all day long, and we were always preached to and told, look out there, 95% of the cars that are driving up and down that road every single day, the people in there don't know Jesus, and if they die today, they're going to hell and they will not experience the love of Jesus for all of eternity. And that drove us mad. That drove us like no other. Or we worked harder. We shared the gospel more. And we were so motivated because we realized that like, we want people to know Jesus and be able to accept him as their Lord and Savior and follow him and be with him for eternity. But the thing is, Satan looks at that same scenario and thinks the complete opposite. He says, good. 95% of all these people... Going, if they die today, we'll never experience that love. And he is happy because of that. Because he does not want us to believe that there is a spiritual realm, that a spiritual battle, a war. And he actually works in real subtle ways. We always think it's like a horror movie, something crazy, where it's like in your face. But the scariest part is that Satan works in the secret and the subtle ways. He's got cunningness. He doesn't want us to realize that the spiritual war is an invisible one. He loves it when we're naive, when we don't believe we're attacked, and, we, and when we become complacent. Jesus is trying to open up our eyes to the spiritual battle and help us realize this reality. And the best way to explain this is by looking at 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 8 to 19. You can open it up in your Bibles at home, but I'm just going to summarize it. 
It's, it's about a piece of uh, Elisha's story, the prophet Elisha. And so at the time, there's the nation of Syria, huge, huge nation that is attacking Israel, God's people, God's nation. They're not nearly as strong. But every time they would try and attack Israel, they're always one step ahead of them because God was always telling Elisha who could then pass on the news to the king of Israel of what the plans were of Syria so that they can avoid being destroyed. And so what happened is this made the king of Syria furious and he sends his gigantic army to surround the city where Elisha is at to try and wipe them out. And Elisha's servant gets up in the morning, goes outside and sees that they're completely surrounded and it freaks out and comes in and tells Elisha. And Elisha tells his servant to not be afraid for those who are with us are more than who is with them. And he prays that God, hey, can you open the eyes of my servant so he can see the realities of this war that's actually going on. And God answers that prayer and opens the eyes of the servant. And he looks to the mountainside and he sees it full of chariots and horses. He sees God's army that is there to protect them. And Elisha goes on and prays, God, can you strike down our enemy with blindness? And God does that very thing. And Elisha goes out to them and says, you're in the wrong place. Let me take you to where you're trying to go. And he leads them to Samaria and they're saved. I find it super fascinating that the big thing Elisha asks for his servant is to open his eyes. And that changes everything. And what is the main thing to hinder the enemy? To close their eyes. I find that super, super fascinating. Because invisible became visible to the servant. And this is what Jesus is bringing our attention to in verse 13 of chapter 6 in Matthew. Because the evil one does not want her eyes to be open to this war. And there's this man far wide man that's far wiser than myself named C.S. Lewis that writes one of my favorite books of all time called The Screwtape Letters. The whole premise of the book is a senior demon trying to mentor a younger or a junior demon and how to try and work on his client, his person, and break them down and pull them farther and farther away from who they call the enemy, which is God the Father. And every chapter is another example of how Satan tries to break us down and pull us away in subtle ways, in ways that we might never expect so that we move farther and farther and farther away from God. And the one that I really want to focus on is in chapter 7, where C.S. Lewis is teaching us of the devil's subtlety and cunningness. So the quote will be on the screen for you. Our policy for the moment is to conceal ourselves. I do not think you will have much difficulty in keeping the patient in the dark. The fact that devils are predominantly comic figures in the modern imagination will help you. If any faint suspicion of your existence begins to arise in his mind, suggest to him a picture of something in red tights and persuade him that since he cannot believe in that, he therefore cannot believe in you. So he said, the devil's main tool is to make us believe that he's just a comical figure, that he's not real, that he's just what we see in cartoons in the red tights, like dancing along, that there's nothing to be worried about. There's nothing that's actually going to harm you. He said, that's when he gets you, when your eyes are closed and when you're completely naive to what's actually going on behind the veil. Piggybacking onto my story about flying on this mission trip to Guatemala, um, one of the main purposes of this trip was to bring these youth students um, and, and show them or give them a bunch of different experiences where they can see how God was working tangibly in other places around the world, where they could build relationships, have their eyes open to new realities and learn something and take it home and essentially bring the kingdom of heaven more into their communities and their schools and their sports teams. 
And so it was more to be like a shocking, like awakening for them. So one of the first places we took them to was this like church on this mountainside overlooking the city that we were at. And it looked like a cute old little like Catholic church. But when we got there, we realized it was something quite different. There was a lineup, tons of people that traveled from afar with money and food and flowers. And they're asking us, why, why are all these people lined up and why do they have all this stuff going into the church? I was like, wait, wait, and you'll see. So we go into the church and they look all around the edges of the whole church building. There are statues and idols and pictures and sculptures, whatever it may be, of all these different things that people were worshiping. You would see there was Jesus, there was Mary, there were the apostles, but then there was also sun gods and snakes and other pictures of all these other things that they worshiped. And people were going around and giving their money and touching all these statues and praying to them and giving flowers and food. And they're like, why are they doing this? And we're explaining to them is that they truly understand that there is the spiritual realm just behind the veil and it's just as real and, it's, and it affects our tangible world, what we can taste, see, feel, hear. And they believe that what they do there, they're going to go to anything that they can, anything that's spiritual in their eyes and say, please help us if, if it's with money or if it's with uh, health, whatever that may be. And they're all can really confuse all of our youth students. We step outside and we see this cross overlooking the city below. But they're like, why does it look like it's been lit on fire multiple times? And we look down and there's a witch that is putting on this ceremony, this ritual, has two large bottles of alcohol in his hands. He's totally drunk and he's spitting the alcohol everywhere. And there's family that has just paid this witch to do this ritual at this cross and sacrifice different things at it. I don't know what they're asking for, but they fully believe that what they were going to call upon was going to impact their very tangible world. And the students were hyperventilating and freaking out because they've never seen that route, the spiritual world in such a tangible way. They didn't realize that there is such darkness in this world and that people believed in it wholeheartedly. They couldn't reconcile what they were watching. We go to this cave later on that's like deep in the mountain where people would sacrifice for different things. And we would see the leftover of all the things that were killed and sacrificed on the floor. Another thing that was eye-opening to them, why would people do this? And we leave the cave and one of our hospitality staff starts sharing stories about the things that he's experienced because he didn't always follow Jesus his whole life and he dabbled with the darkness. And these stories were intense and they were scary and the students were rattled. And he said, I want you guys to leave with this one thing. And they're like, what is it? He's like, I am sorry for you. And they're like, why are you sorry for us? Because he said, here in Guatemala, we know how real this spiritual battle is. It is a part of our everyday rhythms and routines and we are taking action. That's why you see so much darkness, but you also see Jesus transforming whole villages and cities because they realize that you have to pick a side, that there is a battle going on. And he said, I'm sorry for you because when you go home, the enemy is doing the exact same thing that is doing here and what you're witnessing, but it's more dangerous because you don't believe it's happening. And that's how the enemy is going to win. So what I want you guys to ask yourselves, it's a bit of a challenge for you. Have you, do you believe that this spiritual war is real? Do you believe that there's something behind the veil, something that scripture talks about, something that Jesus is telling us we have to open our eyes to and bring attention to? Do you believe that Satan is real and every single day he is that force pushing against you? 
Because even in screw tape letters, it uh, C.S. Lewis talks about, oh, it's good to let the client get older and, and, like, and keep living and living and living because we can't persevere very well. And so it's easier and easier for Satan to wear and work on our souls and pull us away from God. And what I want to ask you is think of a time when you were so excited about your faith. It was just everything you cared about. What were your goals? What were your spiritual rhythms and disciplines? And now think about where you're at right now. Are you just as excited? Do you have the same goals? Do you have the same spiritual rhythms and disciplines? Are you still spending the same amount of time with God? Because if you are not, that means Satan has already done some work on your heart and your life because that just doesn't go away for any reason. I want that to sink in. There's two practical things that I want to pull out from verse 13. Two practical things that Jesus is teaching us on how to actually pray to help prepare us for the spiritual battle and to open up our eyes to what's actually going on. And I want to tie it into um, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. I think it's a great illustration. And the first point that I have and what Jesus is teaching us is the importance of persistence in prayer. And it's tied into the first request in verse 13 where it says, and lead us not into temptation. It is tied hand in hand with the importance of persistence in prayer. And you might say, oh, why is he saying to not, to ask for God to not lead us into temptation? Would God ever like tempt us himself? It's like, no, 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 no. In James chapter one, verse 13, it teaches us that God is not the one that tempts us. He is not the tempter. In certain translations, tempting or the temptation also can mean trials or testing. And that makes way more sense. Because we see in scripture that testing and trials are not always a bad thing. There's something that strengthens our, our faith. It brings us closer to God. It sharpens us. And so it's not always a bad thing. So then we ask, okay, Jesus, why are you asking us then to pray? Lead us not into temptation. Because the thing is, Jesus doesn't tell us to do anything that doesn't actually work. And he's saying that prayer does work and plays a role. We do not control what God does when we pray, but God loves to work through prayer. He loves it when we reach out to him. And Jesus is teaching us that we have every right to ask to be delivered from the testing or the trial that may come in our lives, or at least the strength to endure. Because in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, it indicates to us that God won't give us something that is beyond our ability and he will provide a way for us to either escape that trial or to endure that trial. And if we know that this prayer is from is Jesus' own prayer, we know that he has experienced the, the power and the importance of the, persistence, the persistence of praying against temptation and to be praying to prep to be in help or to endure the trials that are going to come. And we can see Jesus taking his own advice in the Garden of Gethsemane when you look at Luke chapter 22. Jesus was about to step into the biggest trial of his life, something that I would never, ever want to endure. He was about to be led to the cross where he's going to be humiliated. He was going to be in pain. He was going to be alone. And we see in verse 40 of chapter 22 in Luke, that Jesus tells his disciples, pray against temptation. And then Jesus goes off and he does that very thing. And we see that he's, he's pleading and he's pleading and he's persistent in prayer and saying, God, please take this cup from me. He knows what trial is coming. And he's saying, if it is in your will, please take this from me. There's got to be a different way. And it says that in verse 44, while in agony, Jesus prayed more earnestly. 
So he's showing us that there's importance to the persistence of prayer. And he gets up and he goes and he sees that his disciples are sleeping and he gets mad at them, wakes them. And he's like, you got to be praying against temptation. And so we ask the question, why is this so important to be persistent in praying against temptation, praying for these trials? Is because when we enter into persistent prayer for deliverance, we engage more deeply in the fight. We fortify, we invest, and we plan against temptation in tangible ways. Think about any war movie. Half of the movie is them building defenses, strategizing, putting people on watch. They're so in tune and attentive to what's going to happen that they're able to fight the battle that is coming super, super well. Because how do we prepare for these trials? We prepare through prayer. And that's what Jesus is showing because he was preparing for the trial that was going to come. And guess who succeeded in the trial? Jesus. He went through with what God called him to do because he submitted still to God the Father's will. Guess who struggled? The disciples. They ran away. They got aggressive, cut off an ear. They denied Jesus. They did not prepare themselves in prayer for the trial that was going to come. And when we pray so persistently, we bring, we bring our attention to the temptation or the trial that we are currently enduring. And it helps us be more aware of what's going on. Because if you're praying it, you know something's happening. Your eyes are being opened. It's not a blind spot for you. You're not complacent. You're not naive. It's allowing you to be in the mindset where you can actually take tangible action. So the second thing we learn from verse 13 of like the of chapter 6 in the Lord's prayer is the importance of confession because it is inevitable that we will fall into struggles we will fall into sin we will step into trials and testing it's going to happen a lot of the time we are the ones who bring ourselves into those own situations that Satan just has to sit back and watch and watch us take that first step like okay cool now I'll utilize that scenario to break you down and pull you away from being a part of this Jesus movement Maybe that's going into areas and watching things on the internet that you know you shouldn't be dabbling with. Maybe you're having a couple extra drinks and you're making decisions that you wouldn't make normally when you're sober. Maybe you're overworking because you see your job as your worth and then you're, you're, emo you're an emotional wreck and you're breaking down and you're hurting your family and your friendships and you're a shell of yourself. You, we tend to put ourselves in situations that Satan's like, sweet, that's easy. I'll just utilize that to break you down. The thing is, Jesus is the only one that never sinned, that never fell into temptation. But yet again, he's showing us the importance of confession where he is sharing, God, take this cup from me. He's saying that this is going to be difficult. He's admitting how he is feeling. Yet he always knew he was going to follow through because he is the one without sin, the one that doesn't fall into trouble. But he's showing us the importance of vocalizing what we're going through. And I believe that one of the main reasons we see so many people fall into sin and temptation and bring destruction into their own lives and the people around them is that they don't open up and confess regularly about what's actually going on in their hearts. That sin that's deep down inside is being kept in the darkness because a product of our culture is to show the best of yourself, to take control of your own life and to not show weakness. So confession seems counterintuitive. But the thing is in 1 John chapter 1, verse 6, it speaks a hard truth where it talks about if we claim fellowship with God, but you walk in darkness, then you're actually lying and not living in the truth. That's a real tough pill to swallow that if you right now are saying, I follow Jesus and I'm in relationship with him, but yet you have hidden sin that you have not confessed, 
It is saying you are a liar and you're not actually walking alongside of Jesus. It doesn't mean you have to be perfect. It's just saying you need to open up and bring Jesus in onto this battle where Satan has a stranglehold on your life in a certain area and give that to him and confess and be wiped clean. If you do not do that, you are not actually in relationship with Jesus. And then the older that I get, the more aware I am of the impact of the sin and brokenness around me, not just from a distance, but in my own life, in the people that I trust around me, in my family. And it's all because people aren't willing to confess, to open up of what's going on in their lives, the parts of their lives that they're losing in that battle in the spiritual war. I had a boss at a previous church that believed in me, that I loved, did amazing things for the kingdom, that I trusted dearly. I got to witness over time what secret sin did to his own life, to his family, to his friends, to his own joy. And unfortunately, in the end, he got caught with his hidden sin. He didn't confess. He didn't bring it up. The details don't matter whatsoever, but there is that hidden sin in his life that destroyed his marriage. I try, I try to think to myself, what would have happened if that was brought to the light? If that was brought up and then Jesus would step in and bring restoration to what was going on because he didn't have to do it alone. He is, he is like every other person here where we are broken and we are sinful and we need Jesus to step in. Because every time that we see when true confession happens or is brought to light or when people are brought in, healing and restoration speeds up like no other. I see that every single time. Satan wants us to believe that we're fine on our own and he tries to take our trials and our hardships and pushes us to believe that we can be our own gods, that we are good on our own. And we, but we abide in God's love when we forsake and repent from a self-directed life and pursue a God-directed life. Because we cannot manufacture this kind of change on our own. The reason the Lord's Prayer is so effective is that it aligns God's will with our will. Because we see where our hearts are truly at if left on its own. Is that Ezekiel 36.26, it claims that our hearts are so desperately wicked that we need a heart transplant. That's the summary of that verse. So I have a real, real challenge that I want you to be honest with me about. It's a very simple ask. Very simple question is, how often do you pray? If you are honest and you say not a lot, then clearly you're not praying for deliverance that much either. And you know what that communicates to me? Is that you don't clearly, or you clearly don't have a strong enough desire to not sin. You don't have a strong enough desire to actually believe that this battle is real and you will do everything you can to bring Jesus in and overcome this part of the battle that you have to play. That maybe you don't believe that Jesus actually can help you or maybe your desires haven't synced up with the desires of God, that you don't actually desire to be broken free from the stranglehold of Satan. Because I can tell when someone cares about something so deeply they are relentless with their prayers or their attempts to gain what they want. I know this. When I met Des, I prayed every single day, God, how do I live the rest of my life with this amazing woman? 
How do I win her over? When I was at home, I was curled up in a ball like a baby on, on my couch and my mom was my therapist and I prayed and I pleaded with God, how do I woo the heart of this amazing woman? I knew what I wanted every single day. How often do we have that same desire to overcome the sin that's in our lives? And we can't do it alone. And that's why we pray. That's why we are persistent. That's why we confess. Because we desire so deeply to break free from the stranglehold of the enemy and to bring the kingdom of heaven down to earth. That's what we should want and what we should desire. I was listening to this one sermon and there was an amazing illustration I think drives home the importance of persistence and confession in prayer so well. And it's about this historical figure called Mary, Queen of Scots. Other, no, other name for her is Bloody Mary um, because she wanted to kill a bunch of people. Like they said, like around 300 people or so because she believed that they were heretics. And she wanted them to renounce their faith, what they believed about in Jesus. And she put a lot of people to death. But this story is focused more on these two men that were in prison about to walk to um, get burned alive at the stake the next day unless they renounce their faith. The one guy was so overconfident. He's like, I know scripture so well. I have such a good relationship with Jesus that nothing's going to sway me. I will go die praising Jesus. The other man was so aware of his sensitivity to suffering that he knew once he saw the flames, he would crumble. And he was so scared. He did not want to renounce his faith and his love for Jesus. So what did he do? He went to everyone else and he pleaded with them, pray for me, pray for me that I not fall into temptation, that I can endure this trial. Pray that I'm delivered from the grasp of the evil one and what he wants me to do. And he pleaded and he prayed all night long, Jesus, help me. God, help me. Help me not crumble when I see the flames. He confessed his weakness. The next morning, the confident man gets led up to the, to the place where he'd be put to death and they asked him if he would renounce his faith. He saw the fire and he crumbled and he renounced his faith. The man who pleaded all night long and was uh, confessing his weakness, he goes and he is burned alive and it's recorded that while he's been burned alive, he sang hymns and he praised Jesus to the bitter end. It's night and day different. The one who prepared himself in prayer and said, I cannot do this on my own, that I need God to step in and help me endure this trial so that the kingdom of heaven can come down to earth. He was the one who died, even though it was painful, but praising the name of Jesus. See, we need a new heart that's malleable to God's direction. We need a mediator to restore our relationship with God. So when the trials hit, we can endure and come up on the other side more in love with God. I focused a lot on Satan in the sermon. But what I'm more excited to focus on is our ally in this battle. Because it's not dualism. It's not like Star Wars where there's a light side and a dark side where they're even and they're just clashing. Our ally is so much more powerful, so much more loving and kind and good than what our enemy or who our enemy is in the spiritual war. If you truly realize the power of your ally, you will not be afraid. I have a bit of like an illustration. I'm using props. Maybe you haven't seen this for a long time, so I apologize. But I thought this was a really good way to uh, illustrate how we are protected by our ally, how we are not alone in this battle. So I've got different boxes. So, the first box 
is you. You can see my lovely drawing. We have you. And you are in the battle. Then we have a box here. That's the Holy Spirit. This is step one. And so step one is we can focus on Colossians chapter 1, verse 27. It says, To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So we see here, Scripture says the Holy Spirit is within us. The power that actually makes change in your life, if you believe Jesus as your Lord and Savior, is actually inside you, giving you the strength to endure. Then the second part. We look at 2 Corinthians verse or chapter 5, verse 17, where it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. So it says, we are now within Jesus, the one who has actually died, sacrificed himself to wipe us clean so that we can live new life. So when we are on the judge, like when we are being judged and God is looking at us, he sees Jesus in front of us and what Jesus has done for us and lived that perfect life, did not fall into temptation or lose out on trials, that he is the one that we are within. So we have the Holy Spirit within us and then we are within Jesus. Here's my big box. This is God the Father. Not the box, but is representing God the Father. Colossians chapter 3, verses 3 says, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So, we are filled with the power that will help bring change into our lives. We are then within Jesus, the one who's died on the cross for our sins to wipe us clean. And then we are within the Father who sent Jesus to die for us. The one that is in control, the one that loves you deeply, that has the power to win this battle. And so when we feel like we are losing out on this battle, because I don't know what battles you are going through right now. I don't know where Satan has a stranglehold on your life where you feel so hopeless and and you feel like, I can't share what's going on in my life because I will never be loved again. I will never be able to come back from it. I will win this war. The thing is, do not believe that Satan is in the lead, that Satan is winning because you look at this, look at our ally. Look at the layers of protection. There's the God that loves you so deeply that wants to walk beside you in this battle so you can fall through and lock up your desires with his desires so that the whole world knows who he is. That's our vision statement, our mission statement as a church, so that our city knows Jesus. Jesus did tell us that following him would not be easy. But we are called to share this good news with the rest of the world. But the thing is, we feel like the enemy has the upper hand. But the great news is the one that we are praying to, the one that we're asking to remove us from these trials and to deliver us from evil. When we're praying persistently to Jesus, he is the only one that could do what we can never do. And the work has already been done. So I don't know what you're going through right now. I don't know what battles you're in. I don't know where you're losing out in life. But you do right now, when I bring this up, you already know where you feel like you're losing in this war. 
what I'm encouraging you to do is to take this prayer to heart. If you want to join this kingdom movement, and if you want to bring the kingdom of heaven down to earth, then you need to be praying persistently, and you need to be able to confess what's actually going on deep down inside. And today, I want to ask you to probably make one of the toughest confessions of your entire life. This might not be a confession that everyone watching actually needs to make, but there might be people that are watching this sermon right now that this is specifically for you, and I want to give you this opportunity to confess. If it's talking to a loved one, talking to one of the pastors or staff here at Ridge Church, talking to someone else that goes to Ridge Church. But I want you to confess, if this is you, that you have been living your life believing that you are the God of your own life. That you are the one that doesn't need anyone else, that doesn't need any help in this battle, that feels like you have everything under control, but nonetheless, life keeps hitting you over and over and over again. And that's not just coincidence. That is Satan attacking you and destroying you and discouraging you. And you thought and believed that the spiritual war is not real and you believe that you can do this all on your own. Now, right now, I'm challenging you, if you have not done this before, is to confess, I cannot be the Lord and Savior of my own life. To bring that confession to the feet of Jesus, who has died for your sins and was risen again, conquering Satan, sin, and death, and telling him, I confess I need you, Jesus, as my Lord and Savior, so that I can do what this prayer is calling me to do, because I can't do this on my own. I want to give you the opportunity to do that right now, so if you feel convicted, Please tell someone. Let someone walk you through that prayer of accepting Jesus as your Lord and Savior so you do not have to do this battle on your own. Maybe you've already accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, but you have some hidden sin, something you need to bring up and confess that you haven't for a very long time. You're really scared to do so. I want to challenge you that this is the time, not tomorrow, not next week, but today, to go and confess that to someone that you trust. And for the person that's hearing this confession, do not judge. Pray. Pray with them. Pray persistently and say, God, help them overcome the sin and the stranglehold in their lives. No one is too far gone. No one is alone. All you have to do is pray and say, God, I need you. God, I, I can't do this on my you are my ally. So pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Because God, you're the only one that can. Lord, we love you, and that's our prayer today. Lord, lead us not into temptation, and deliver us from evil.